Welcome to Winning Uglier with Brad Gilbert. What up, Buck? We've had a week off. You needed time to regroup, but I'm looking over at you. You look a bit disheveled. You've been moving all weekend. How did it go? <laughs> yeah, a little disheveled is fair. Uh, but yeah, I, the move went well, you know, it's, I, I don't think moving is ever easy for anyone, but, uh, got through it. So all good. You Here went down now, a break a few different times. Oh my gosh. I, I felt like I just started down like a set in a break and I was even telling my roommate, I was like, by the end of the day, I was like, okay, I think I feel like I'm finally, finally winning once I uh, just got into cleaning mode, but it, it took a while to take the lead there. I was losing all day. Sometimes perseverance, you get the break back, you finally turn it around. Exactly. Pers- pers- it, was a, it was a great exercise in perseverance, for sure. So today, we're going to actually have our first ever guest on the podcast. Really excited. Your good friend, Vince Van Patten. I like to refer to him, I think he has a really solid claim to this title, as the most interesting man in the world, because the guy has done a super cool and wide range of things, actor, professional tennis player, poker player and commentator, writer, producer. His resume is is pretty awesome. Uh, how about two? The best paddle tennis player oh, for yeah. a while as well. I know, best best paddle tennis player. And yeah, we didn't even we didn't even get into that one. Anyways, really excited to bring to you this interview. I think we have, you know, a few really good stories in there. Uh, my dad and Vinny get into their talk about winning Miami doubles in 1986, talk some comparisons between tennis and poker, and uh, also get into Vinny's movie, Seven Days to Vegas, that just came out within the last year. So really excited. Hope you guys enjoy the conversation. What up, Vinny? Is it foggy at your joint? It's fogged in here at the beach. Yeah, BG, it's all good. We're out here in Malibu. Very lucky. And it's a little foggy here. I'm, I'm not on the ocean like you are, of course. I'm, a, I'm about a half a mile inland, but it's great. And listen, you came out here a couple of years ago. You moved out here and it's been fun. And now we're, we're old buddies again. It's great. I love it. All right. Curious about this question. I never even asked you. How did you go? from a very successful child actor to a fairly unheralded junior tennis player to becoming a top 100 player so quickly after high school. Yeah, I tell you, it was a fluke. You know, uh, my top ranking was top 25 in the world. I was the ATP Rookie of the Year in 1979. uh, But I had no ranking in Southern California. I think I was ranked 10 in Southern Cal. I, I got... First of all, I never had any lessons, okay? I, we went to, my father put me to one tennis teacher when I was 14 years old. The guy hit with me for about 45 minutes, and my father says, so what do you think? Is he going to be a good player? The guy goes, if he plays all the time, he'll become a very good club player, perhaps. 
That was his answer. So uh, I didn't listen to anyone. I never had another lesson, but I would watch the great players play, and I would try to emulate their strokes. And I got physically stronger, and I got beat up so much on the circuit, and beat, 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 never made the Nationals, nothing, snubbed. And you know, there's a whole power trip out there. There's an echelon of players, and they're, they're snobby to young juniors. And so I got pushed around so much, I think it was one of those things where I finally said, I got to show him. I got I got to show him. And I kept training and getting bigger, faster, stronger. And I always believed deep in my heart that I could play the big points well. And so uh, it was a uh, it was an amazing thing and uh, had a nice career. Got to play great doubles with you. We had some fun out there. And, and you know, there's nothing like it when you start winning and you start doing well. And uh, it could be a great game, but it also could be a really, really tough game, as you know. Did you have to, like, all of a sudden put your acting on hold and say, okay, I'm going to really focus more on your tennis? Could you do one, one or, you know, or had to be just, you know, I single-minded, okay, if I want to be a tennis player, I got to play tennis? You know, I was a kid actor since the age of nine. I did a few TV series. I was the bionic boy. So I did have a career. I did some pretty good movies. And then after a while, um, it, my career sort of was tailing off a little bit. I was making a transition, you know, into uh, an adult, a full, you know, grown adult. And uh, at that time, my tennis was getting good, too. So I just basically, actually, here's what happened. I was 19 years old. I got offered from Bob Evans, Paramount Studios, to play the lead opposite Ali McGraw in a thing called Players. It was a big, big movie of the year, actually. And it was about a tennis professional. And uh, Bob Evans said, Vinny, I want you to do this part. It's your part. Turn down everything in the entertainment business. You're, this is going to be your part. We're doing it eight months from now. I said, great, Bob. Fantastic. So I had a big shot at a big movie. Long story short, at the end of the day, right before filming started, I wind up screen testing with Ali, and so does Dino Martin, Dean Martin's son, who was a very good tennis player too. And he gets the part. He was about six years older than me, and he looked more right against Ali. So I didn't get the part. I was depressed. And I go, I say, screw it. I'm going to try the tennis circuit. And I go over to England with like you know, five ATP points. I had expectations of going through the qualifying and playing these tough tournaments by myself and maybe making Wimbledon, going into the qualifying of Wimbledon. Long story short, I lost three awful first rounds at Chichester, Birmingham, and one other tournament. And then I play the qualifying at uh, the Wimbledon. I lose third round at Charlie Fancut, 7-5 in the fifth. I lose. I'm depressed. I don't know what I'm going to do. I go by Wimbledon. I go, at least I'll look at Wimbledon. Maybe I can get in. I look, and I'm on the outside, and I can't get tickets to go into Wimbledon. I'm just a stumble bum. And I look inside, and what are they filming there? But they're filming the movie Players with Ali McGraw <laughs> and Dean Martin. And I go, uh-oh, that's it. That's the end of my life. And I turned around, didn't see Wimbledon that year, went home, didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And I took a couple of months off, and I came back in the fall. And gradually, for some reason, I got better. And about a year from there, I was the ATP Rookie of the Year, which was fun. Very cool. I mean, in some ways, I mean, you guys obviously different, totally different childhood backgrounds. But you guys, games both kind of clicked into place once you, once you got a little bit physically stronger, kind of both matured into it. And then all of a sudden, it seems like you guys just were both able to, to take off once, once, you know, the timing was right. I believe that Brad was a great player, too, because he had great heart. He's a great athlete, too. And he great desire. And he was a smart player. He knew how to play. I had the same 
attributes, I believe. I, I believe when the big point comes, I will win it. I, I will go for the shot, and I would come through. So does Brad. I think that's what separates us. And I had belief that I could beat anyone. I was never intimidated by anyone. Uh, Brad, wouldn't you say that's, that's some similarities there? Oh, oh, definitely. I mean, I think that getting knocked around when you're younger, I think some, you fall off the horse, you don't get back on. I think it made both of us a lot stronger. And I, and I think that, you know, by the time I was like 19, 20, as my game started to blossom, you know, your belief, you know, and you forget these losses. And, and that's the one thing about tennis. It's about tomorrow. Because I wanted to get to, my, my dad always tells me, Vinny, like, you're, you're always a better, you're a better player, tennis, poker, whatever kind of it is, when you, when you have some money on the line and, and you're, you perform well under pressure. And I think you just kind of alluded to that. You know, I was just kind of curious, like, what what is it about um, the added pressure that kind of causes you to perform your best? Because I think it's it's something that on the flip side, a lot of people struggle with. So it's a great point. I, I don't know. I think because you're right, everybody, there's a lot of players that hit the ball well. But when it's that big point and they have to come up with a shot, they can't quite execute. They get a little nervous or something. I would tell myself, I'm going to make this. And I would be very, very positive, And I would say, you know. I'm just I'm just going to make it happen. And I think in poker, I played a lot of poker and a lot of big games. And now I do the World Poker Tour. And, and I was a, a very good cash game player. And I think it's executing the bluff at the right time or seeing through people at the right time. And there's some similarities there between being a top a poker player and a, a top tennis player, I believe. Vinny, one of the first times that we practiced together, 1982, Malibu. You come out to the court, you've got the perfect Alessé clothes, and I was shocked that your game, that you flew in on everything. You didn't have like board groundies. But I remember, you know, I didn't have a lot of money in my pocket. I was doing okay, you know, even though I was in school. But immediately, let's bet something. And so that, that always seemed to be a motivation for you and I think that when you did that, all of a sudden, it, it also was a light switch for me that like, okay, you make practice a little more, you know, there's something on it. Is that what helped, you know, kind of get your focus and concentration or you couldn't get up for playing for no money? I couldn't get up for it. I, honestly, I, you know, in practice, uh, it means nothing. And you see so many juniors that play great or pros that play great practice and they'll, they'll knock off a top guy. That means nothing. First of all, Jimmy Connors used to play balls six to eight inches out. He didn't care. He was just training. And I kind of I learned from that type of style. I'll play the out balls. I don't care if I have the win. And yet so many people put their whole game on, did I win today in practice? And if you can get away from that, you'll become a better player. So uh, now there are times when I would play you or somebody and I would get up for it and say, hey, today I'm going to put 100 bucks on it. Maybe Brad will bet me $100 and we'll really go after it like it's a tournament because it means something. You lose that hundred, it's a little annoying. So you're going to play bigger and better. But uh, we, we, we uh, you know, we kept that for certain occasions. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a cool psychological component to it. Just, just creating that little extra incentive to really kind of get you, get you into it, get you ready to go. But I, I wanted you guys to get into um, the story of, of winning uh, Miami doubles in 1986. There's a, there's a lot of cool little components to it. But you guys hadn't uh, actually played that many tournaments together prior, uh, maybe a few. But I was just wondering what uh, made you guys gel so well as a team. Uh, I, BJ, I believe we 
complemented each other. You had the great forehand side. You played the two side. I had the great backhand for the backhand side. We both were good volleyers, believe it or not, with quick hands. So we understood. Let's let's hit that great return down at the feet and let's move in. And and we were both hyper. We both clicked. We both liked each other. We were good buddies. So we pumped each other up, and it was just exciting. What do you think? I, I here's a good backstory for you, Vinny. So first round, we're down. It's unbelievably hot we're playing in Boca that's when Miami tournament was actually in Boca we're down a set to a really tricky team Anacone Van Rensburg first round 6-3 we lose the first set 23 minutes and it's not looking that great and you were like you were struggling a little bit and out of nowhere I believe that you said to your coach I'm a little flat get me some double espresso (laughs) <laughs> next thing you know a couple games later you get a couple of double espressos in you on the changeover i'm looking at you like are you kidding and you start profusely sweating <laughs> and Vinny played in the ad side buck and he would start standing close to the middle of the court it's like you're not going to serve to my forehand i'm going to get a backhand next thing you know we turn around the second set and you tell the coach again get me some more espressos get me in a thermos you must have had 12 double espressos. I have no idea how you were even functioning, but we toughed that match out like 3-6-6-1-6-4. It's amazing how one match like you know gives you a little def- different feeling. Next thing you know, we're in the tournament. Yeah, it was so funny, but uh, that was one of my secrets and I did it from the beginning of my tennis career. Is I drank a lot of coffee on the court. I knew that pumped me up and people would say, "What other players would go, you're drinking coffee? you crazy? That's going to dehydrate? I didn't care. It was something that I really clicked in. And I couldn't play without coffee. Now, I played Henrik Sundstrom, 1982. He's seated seven. I don't get seated because they only seated 16 back then. I was ranked 26 in the world. I played Sundstrom, who I maybe should beat because he's a clay court from Sweden. Okay. Um, he's playing great, though. We're in the fifth set. Honest to God, I was so tired. And I'm, I'm like... 3-3 in the fifth set, and literally I had a friend of mine bring out more and more espresso, and I, I counted. I had 28 shots of espresso during that match. No way. No, no way. And lost 6-4 in the fifth. Didn't sleep for two days after that. So that was a horrible experience. <laughs> I mean, that's got to be a world record. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. People were looking at me. They had a whole tray of espressos all over it. I was guzzling them down. It wasn't helping at that point. I was way over the top. That's one of those, a bet. Could you make a bet on how many you could drink and survive it? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I was, yeah, because you, you mentioned it like where I, that's the first thing that popped into my head too is like, how are you staying hydrated with the, the dehydration factor of the espressos, especially in a place like Florida with the humidity? But I mean, clearly it worked, it worked for you. I mean, I have even seen players now, I think like Riley Opelka is one that He'll chug a Red Bull like right after the match to keep the energy level up so he doesn't come down too quick. So, I mean, th- there's certainly still like examples of that out there where people definitely need, need the energy kick. I think that also, uh, that's why most of my good big wins were indoors because it was cooler. Mm. And so I wouldn't sweat it all out. Right. Outdoors, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I was done because of the espressos probably and the, <laughs> the coffee. <laughs> I'll give you one thing too, to, to the key component to the doubles actually at any level, whether or not it's juniors, it's club players at home, it's me and Vinny, it was chemistry and that feeling of playing not as two, but as playing as one. And since we were good friends, 
on and off the court. I think it's competing together as a team makes you better as one individual. And the reason why I think that I really wasn't a good doubles player until actually playing with Vinnie Buck was that I always played singles playing doubles. So whoever I would play with, I was always kind of playing singles and not really thinking as a team. Vinny got me thinking as a team. Uh, that's a great point. I, and even for me in college, I mean, I think I played my best doubles with uh, my buddy Sky, who's pretty much my best friend growing up. And yeah, I think it's not even necessarily the, um, you know, on-court element, which is obviously big, but having that sort of friendship and 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 having that that kind of like understanding of each other i think it helps so much in the communication aspect of it for sure well brad was always good as a partner where i'd miss an easy shot and brad wouldn't do one of those you know come on you know none of that and neither would i we had respect that way uh and i think that helps a lot because you can't get down on each other one iota as you know zach with doubles and everything. You can't with your partner. Otherwise, you're doomed. My brother Nels and I played a lot of doubles together, and we were pretty good. But if I missed a shot, I would look at the corner of my eye. I would see him throw up his hands and go, oh, you got to, you got to, Vin, you cannot miss that. And then a shot would come up the middle, and I would take it, and I'd miss it, and he goes, that was my shot. You know, It was like the end. <laughs> you can't fight like that. It's just awful. We had a funny moment once we were playing Stratton Mountain, and – I didn't get down low enough. You cracked a serve up the middle and you hit me in the back of the head and you were like, shoot, that would have been the one ace I would have had. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, but I couldn't agree more. You just, you can't have even have the thought that the guy like, oh, you know, over your shoulder might be like getting down. You can't have that feeling hanging over your head. So when you know you got a partner that's like supportive, bringing the positive energy and it's going to have your back essentially, whether you're hitting, you know, playing well that day or, or you're off. And that's the thing too, is some days, so, you know, you're going to be better. Some the other days, your partner's going to be better, but it's just able to being able to stay positive out there and having that good positive partnership out there for sure. So we wanted to also get into some poker. I mean, I know we alluded to uh, it a little bit earlier, but get into it a little bit deeper. I mean, you've been a, a commentator on the World Poker Tour. I think it's for 17 years now. I actually think my dad started commentating uh, tennis at ESPN around the same time that you started commentating poker. I think you guys have both been doing it a really similar time span, which is, which is really cool. And I'm just curious, on, on a couple of different levels, the similarities or maybe differences between playing uh, tennis and poker. Uh, I mean, obviously, poker is such a mental, you know, challenge on so many fronts and, and, and tennis really is too. And I think, you know, my dad really, you know, that's, that's his, you know, what he embraces the most when it comes to tennis. But I I just wanted to, you know, ask you um, in terms of like the mental focus and preparation between tennis and poker, do you think like the two kind of help work together? Does one make the other better? What sort of keys do you think are come to come to mind when it comes to focus in poker and tennis? Mm-hmm. I think the biggest one for sure is, uh, like Brad says, uh, you got to win playing ugly. You can't mind, you know, you can't, it's okay to be ugly out there. And in poker, it's the same thing. I don't want to look pretty. Mm-hmm. I don't want to have to make the great plays. I don't want to be the big show off at the table. That's the kiss of death. I want to take the money at the end of the day. I want to take the match at the end of the day. I don't care what I look like. If I won and moved on and was going to play the next day, I was the hero. You lose, you look pretty, you hit the ball nice, and you lose, you're a bum. 
in my eyes. And it's the same. It's so competitive. Poker and tennis. So you have to have that great desire to win. Figure it out. Look ugly out there and just win. I got to ask you, speak about that. So much of poker is about knowing information at the table. A little bit like tennis. Tell me about tells in poker and did you have them in tennis? That's a good question. Yes, there's there's definitely tells in poker. And I had a big cash game for years in Los Angeles. It got bigger and bigger. And I had a rotation of about 80 players we knew. And some of them were great. And some of them were not that great, you know. And uh, But I I knew everybody's tells. And I would study it. And I would write them down after. Because I played for years. And I wanted to have a little edge. So if you study tells, you can find out a lot about a person. I used to like to make them talk at the table. Because if the more they talked about their hand and this and that, I'll figure out something. Uh, believe me. And now today in tournament poker, they don't let you talk as much. They don't let you BS enough. So my edge has gone away in tournaments, at least. Even in cash games at casinos, they don't let you do as much. So I had to sit a big edge in my own home games. We could do a lot of things. So uh, that's a huge part of it. Now, in, in tennis, I think like you're the genius coach now, and, and you knew exactly where a player was and how to play him and when they were going to break and how to get to them, and when to just capitalize and go after it. And I feel that's the same way. In tennis, you've got to be able to read your players and see when they're breaking and when they're hot and how to get them off stride. Okay, I'll tell you an Andre story here on tells. I mean, I, I had information that guy would play certain ways, but I didn't have any tells like, you know, all of a sudden the guy's rubbing his eye or doing something at the table. Andre told me this story that reading Boris Becker's serve and I was like and and I'm looking at him okay and he goes he's going through his whole routine and he would waggle his tongue to uh, and he goes serving wide in the deuce court Come he'd on. waggle his ta- tongue <laughs> and he's serving wide in the ad court and I was and I was like looking at him I was like are you kidding he's like and he was dead serious he'd go through his whole routine bounce the ball cough do everything that Becker would do and I was like and he and he was almost like being annoyed with me because I wasn't believing him. <laughs> so about three years later, Boris Becker's retired. We're in Germany. We're having a couple of beers with him. He doesn't hold his beers very well. Andre tells him this story about, you know, because actually Boris asked him, how do you know my serve so well? Andre tells him the story about the tongue. Yeah. And Boris is getting so frustrated. Then immediately he goes through his routine and immediately the tongue waggles to the left. He goes, look, you're serving wide to my forehand. Tongue wide, serving wide to my backhand. Tongue up. You're going down the middle. Every time Boris would do something, he'd make a motion. Was I couldn't believe that Andre could pick up on this. Never told anybody this. It's one of the craziest things. And he had another guy, every big point, would rub the back of his neck and he'd go tee. And I was like, never tell anybody your tells. And it goes, and save him for the big moments. So I, I actually never knew something like that. So in a poker game, do, do big tells like that really do exist with players? Yes, they do. They do. Uh, less and less these days. People cover them up. And if you're playing at a high level, they're not going to give that many tells away. But if you get to talk to them, I guarantee you, you find out a lot of stuff. But uh, look, poker is so competitive now that they're looking at, you know, they, they can't afford to have the tells out there anymore. But uh I, I can't believe that story about Andre. Great call on him. Wow. Yeah, my first thought when I heard that story was like, 
well, first, how good is his vision that like from 75, 80 feet away that like he must just, I mean, obviously the way he's able to pick up the return and stuff, he does have eyes like a hawk, but the way he can pick up those sort of little things from that far away in the court is pretty amazing. I used to tell him too, like, you, you know, like I, I thought when I had a good day, you had to repeat the day, you know, because that's like, you know, a tennis or gambler's mentality. And then he told me, you know, we were driving around Vegas the first time I was with him and he said, you know why there's more walls being built in Vegas? Because people come to Vegas thinking a rabbit's foot is going to give right. you a better chance of winning. And he goes, no, that doesn't exist. That doesn't work, man. Know your opponent's strengths and weaknesses and yeah. have a tell. Speaking of Vegas, your movie last year, Seven Days to Vegas, which we uh, we both loved, uh, my dad and I, you know, I was watching it and I mean, I couldn't help but like thinking watching the movie, like this really is sort of the ultimate winning ugly story in a lot of ways. I mean, and just to just, just give uh, the listeners a little bit of a context and, and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong on the recap, but you uh, essentially take a million dollar prop bet that you cannot walk from Los Angeles to Las Vegas in the middle of the summer through the desert wearing a suit and uh, essentially, the, the, you know, you got to make it under the seven day time limit and uh, based on true events from what I've heard. Exactly right. It's a comedy. It's like the sting uh, meets the hangover. I like to pose it as. And uh, it's based on my real game that got bigger and bigger in the crazy bets we made. And one of the bets I really did make was that bet that I could walk from Vegas, from L.A. to Vegas in seven days. And uh, they all come to watch me lose. And so it's out and you can get it now on Amazon's uh, Prime and it's it's everywhere and it's got great reviews and it was fun to do. And it's just, I mean, I love, the, I love the idea of crazy prop bets and things like that. And I love the genre of con movies and hustlers. So that's the film, Seven Days to Vegas. I'm glad you guys liked it. Did you, halfway through like the, the walk, did you, like, when did you start contemplating that like, uh-oh. I might be a little over my skis on this one. Well, a lot of it's fictionalized too, so to uh, to make it even more exciting. So it's uh, it's it's part based on it's based on the true story, but it's a lot of fiction there too. But uh, it, you know, to make a bet like that, and I was a lot younger, and uh, to do it in seven days, you'd have to average forty miles a day for seven days. How many people, Zach? You're a young guy. Could you do that? Would, let's say you got to train for three weeks. Would you make that bet? Probably not. Not if you had a bet. A big amount of money, right? I mean, probably not, especially factoring in like those kind of conditions, yeah. like 110, 120 degree heat. Yeah. I, yeah I, I don't know if I would take that, take that one, though. You know, the most interesting thing about competing, let's say whether or not it's golf, it's tennis, it's poker, if you're not playing with your own money, it's a different mentality. When you bet your own money, even betting for $100 in tennis, it's a different, you know, mindset winning and losing. And that's why even for junior players, playing for lunch, playing for something changes, you know, y y your competitive nature. Because some people, oh, I don't want to bet. I don't want to bet. I don't want to do it because I just want to win or lose what I'm playing for. But actually playing with your own money is a completely different element in, in my humble opinion. Absolutely, Brad. You know, in poker... You can't play a friendly game of poker without playing for something. It means nothing. All the moves are made on, I'm going to get out of this hand. I'm going to get out of this hand. I'm going to play this hand right so I win the money. So there's no other way to play poker. You can't play just for fun and money means nothing. That's poker. Now, I'm going to tell you a funny story about 
tennis and how I used to bet back in my junior days. I'm 19. I'm just getting out of the juniors. And Larry Riggs at Pepperdine used to let me practice with the team a little bit. I heard, hey, maybe I can go up there. And he said, yeah, play with my guys. And I would play with tough players. Like, you know, I wasn't that good at the time. Eddie Edwards and the other Edwards and all the guys. And, oh, Ed, uh, yeah. Craig Edwards, Craig Eddie Edwards. Edwards. Yes, Leo Palin. And these top all good players. players. And I was close to them. I was close. I would give them a game. But he never quite considered me that good you know i'd be like you know whatever and i played for about two months up there in practice and i thought i gave them a good game till one day and i liked larry but one day he came up to me and said vinnie you can't play here anymore with my guys i said what why not he goes you're not good enough he goes you're just not good enough so we can't get you up here i said really i'm not good enough now my new york came out i said i'm not good enough i go i could beat any of your guys on your team he goes oh really Really, you could beat anybody, and now all the teammates just start to, you know, look around and, and look at me, sort of laugh and everything. They go, "Yeah," I go, and I'll, he goes, "Really? Would you want to bet on that?" I said, "Yeah, I'll bet you a hundred dollars I could beat anybody on your team." So he goes, "Okay." <laughs> now they're all laughing. Let me play him. Let me play him. He goes, "Mo, Mo, why don't you play Vinny for a hundred dollars?" So Maurice, uh, I forget his last name. He was like number three on the team. Very good player, and the whole team watched, and I played Maurice for a hundred dollars. And I lose 7-5 in the third. They're kind of laughing. I pay my $100. I never went back there. They kicked me off. I couldn't train. But I swore that day. I said, I'm going to beat these guys. There's a reason why that happened. And I'm going to come back. And I'm going to get strong. Two months later, I'm playing in this big tournament in L.A. It's like a you know college, almost pro tournament. And I get in. And I beat Eddie Edwards. I beat the other Edwards, Craig Edwards. And I lose to Leo Palin in the final. But I was, it was like the biggest upset of all time in a Southern California top college tournament. And it, it was just one of those things that made me play harder. And it was all because of that 100 bucks. It was all because he says I couldn't do it. So I thought you could relate. I actually thought you were going to tell the story of like, I threw the 100 bucks so I could get back up there. Uh-huh. And then uh, next thing you know, I beat each one of them and I made like 700. Because see, that would be total Vinny to drop the 100. Yeah. And a close one, That's and then okay, let me get a little revenge. And next thing you know, I'm getting a 200 of it. But it's amazing that players, though, their games do come down because all of a sudden you start playing nervous, you start playing tight, and that's a lot of the similarities between poker and tennis. What's tougher, a bad beat in tennis, blowing match points, or a brutal beat in poker, all in somebody gets like a, a river card to just throw you out of the tournament. Yeah, for like a big amount of money would be, it's, it's awful. When you have a big loss, mostly I play cash games, but when I have a big loss, it hurts. It hurts not just for a day. It hurts for two, three, four days. You know, it stings so bad. But a tennis loss is the same thing. But tennis, as you know, and at least when I played, I would play and if I had a bad beat uh, and it was a really long match, I'd be sore for two or three days too, especially on the grass over there in England and everything. And that would hurt too. So I, in the mornings, you'd be so tired and achy and then I probably would go out the night before and get drunk. So I'd be hung over <laughs> too. So it was a mess. And then you're, out, you're traveling by yourself on the road. There's no team there for you. It's the toughest sport in the world, bar none. Tennis is brutal. It's great when you're winning. It's great if you have that edge. If you're at the top five and you're beating guys 80% of the time, 90% of the time, God bless you. It's the greatest sport in the world. But when you're out there and now you're kind of slumping and you're winning maybe 50, 50% of the time, it's horrible. It's a war. You know it. So it's tougher. Ten- being a pro tennis player is, is tougher than being an actor, 
poker actors player. Actors piece of cake. I mean, they, <laughs> come on. They either make it or they don't. They, they bartend at some place. But uh, poker is brutal because you're putting up your own money. And it's very highly competitive. And you better be in the right games playing against weaker opponents. Otherwise, you will lose. You'll hate it. But tennis is a brutal sport. And it's great when you're winning and I was on a roll and I thought I could beat anybody and I was beating a lot of players, top, top players. It was the greatest ride ever. But that ride goes over. And once you start losing, man, it is rough. All right. Lately, I've seen you about town at the club. I got to ask you, how's it going coaching your wife in tennis who has gotten back in tennis how is your patience and how is coach Vinny doing yeah well we're getting divorced next week so it's been going <laughs> great brad i just brought it up no uh <laughs> eileen i love her so much and she said could you teach me some things i said okay she goes i used to play tennis before i knew you and i you know i said well what's happened okay let's get out there anyway i've been giving her some lessons i put her on the ball machine i gave her some tips she's getting very good and we have lunch after it's a bonding experience. It's beautiful. I love it. And it's fun to be playing tennis again. My knees are getting better. So I want to get out there. I want to start playing some singles again. Maybe I'll play against you even. Well, I'll tell, I'll tell the listeners, I'll tell Buck, that when me and you hit a few balls, within seven or eight minutes, you want to go, let's go up the line. Let's play a game up the line. Let's play cross. Let's play cross. Within a few minutes... We got to be doing something. You you hate to just you know not be doing something. You're you're one of the guys that that, that loves to just even if we're just doing a little fun. Let's let's compete. Let has to have a cross court purpose or down the line purpose. I want to because I think that improves me. I'm trying to get my footwork going. But I love the way you warm up. You warm up extremely slow, and I do too. <laughs> generally speaking, I'm a little faster than you. But I've had my coffee, so I'm going a little bit faster than you. And you're going. Slow it down, Vinny. And we, we start, we get a good rhythm. We don't miss many balls out there. I like to be able to make 50 balls in a row fairly slow before we move on. Exactly. Hey, I used to think my brother Nels, Nels was very good at warm-ups too. And we'd say, one ball. We don't want three balls. I don't want four balls on the court. I have one ball because I'm going to play a little safer and I'm going to keep that ball in play for a long time. I'm going to get my rhythm. Having that one ball, it's the motivator. Keep that rally going. I think, I think it's actually a good thing to work on. Basically give yourself no other real option, right? I, yeah, look, my brother Nels is a top tennis teacher in Southern California. He teaches a lot of great juniors, on and on. A lot of them are very good, but a lot, they all miss way too many. They're not doing the one ball rule. They're not playing it quite. They all want to hit the big shot power all the time. They don't understand the mix-up, how to keep the ball smoothly in play. That's what I notice, And they usually don't make it. It's very tough to make it out there. I got to say, though, it, it, this is one of the first times I've heard my dad be described as like taking it slow and like methodical. Usually he's, he's the one like picking, picking up the pace. So I like but he, but he is. You're right. In the warm ups or when he's hitting on the wall, he does get that's about as zen out as he ever gets. I, I will agree with that one. How was he? He must have been a, a great coach. How, how was he coaching you as a, you were a great junior and college player? And also, how was he as a coach? You could be honest, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he was great. I mean, it is always an added dynamic, the, the, the father-son element. And it, yeah. it was an interesting situation, you know, being, you know, 12, 13, 14. And I know he, he's given me all this great advice and I'm trying my best to implement it. But at the same time, you have this like instinct to want to like rebel against it. And yeah. that, was, that was a little bit of a, of a, of a, of a hard sort of, thing to fight at times but we, we we definitely got past that and 
on the overall, I mean, great experience. And I mean, I think all the stuff that we've been able to do together in tennis from, you know, him coaching me when I was younger to now, you know, working, working at ESPN and, uh, you know, I do the content research, he commentates. It's just been a really, a really good journey throughout the whole thing. And, you know, I used to go to tournaments with him and stuff when he was coaching, uh, Andre and, uh, Roddick and Murray. So all in all, fantastic experience. Hey Vinny, I'll tell you one funny story about stressing out, uh, Zach. <laughs> so we're at a tournament. He's 14. He's playing a guy and he's in a battle. I'm about four courts away. And the lady that's roaming the courts, kind of the walking, roving umpire lady, she was around when I was a kid. And I'm going like this with my hand because Buck is playing the guy's, you know, backhand too much. And I'm wanting to play the the forehand. I'm making the forehand motion. Trying to do the third base coaching. And, and Zach is throwing up his hands at me like he doesn't know what I'm talking about. I keep going, like, play the forehand. The lady sees me, walks right over to me, and throws me out. I never got caught for coaching in my pro career. I get the hook at the boys' 14s tournament. Got the hook. Zach is so mad at me. Yeah. Kim is so mad at me. They're going to make me, like, walk home. I got the walk of shame. I've got to walk out of the tournament, kicked out, and then Buck ends up losing, like, seven, six, and a third, three-hour match. I mean, so long story short, don't coach and get caught. I got <laughs> caught and got the hook the only time in my coaching career. Hysterical. That's a great story. Ah. Well, th- hey, thanks for ha- being on with us, Vinny. Our first guest on Winning Uglier podcast. You the man, buddy. Hey, I, it's an honor to be there with you guys. And you guys are blessed to be able to father and son be in the same business at that high level and enjoy it. I mean, that is a great, great thing. So I respect what you guys do. You guys are the best in the game. BG, you're an incredible announcer. So uh, thanks for having me on. I'll see you out there. Cheers, buddy. Beers on me next time. Okay. Really enjoyed that interview with Vinny. Don't have as much time today for the Q&A component, but we did want to get to one question, and I sort of actually have combined two questions into one this week because two guys really sent in very similar questions. So I was like, okay, I see a little little theme, a little pattern going. Why don't, why don't we combine them? So one from Drew and one from Adam M. Both guys feel like they play their best when they're just playing baseline games, it's a little bit more of a casual component. But they struggle to make the transition into playing sets. And neither is really just simply because of the serve and return factor. Drew says that sets are more of a struggle because the longer format allows his mind to wander and he loses focus and rhythm. So it's a bit of a concentration issue. And Adam says he feels an added tension playing sets and uh, ends up getting a little bit too tight to the point where he's not really enjoying it. So I'm just wondering how both of these guys, slightly different, you know, reasons to why, but how they can both get better at playing sets and learn to enjoy the process of match play. Interesting question. I'm going to take you way back to when I was a kid. I used to play a ton of baseline games with my older sister, Dana. And when you play a 21-point baseline game, you know, they can take almost as long as a set. 
And there's a lot of peaks and valleys. You know, you can come back like a, like a super breaker. But the, the hugest difference between playing a baseline game, I actually like the, the one now. I never did this as a kid where maybe you get two points for a clean winner, three points for a volley winner. But the difference in a baseline game, let's say you play, you win 21-14, 21-12. It doesn't have the same significance to saying you beat somebody 6-4-6-2. Because when you play in tournaments, you play a set. And obviously, the biggest difference between a baseline game, which I think are great for practice, by the way. But the difference in mentality is in a set, every point starts with a server return. And I do think a lot more players struggle, especially at the club level, juniors, with the the serve and return format and, you know, what you can lose opposed to playing a baseline game. Every point is out of your hand. Sometimes you even start with it going cross. It's a little more of a comfort setting. So I do think it's a great practice vehicle. A lot of things that you can do. I like the added that you've kind of taught me about, Buck, is two points for a clean winner, three points for a winner at the net. So you have a little more significance of points, you know, being won on some different styles. But still, there's something to be said when you play a practice match. I used to have running practice matches with guys. Okay, I'm up 15-9 in set. You know, I'm down, you know, you know, 8-12, so I can only get two back this week. And maybe, can, can I play an extra set if I win the two? So I like doing both of these for practice because there's something that you're trying to win or lose with sets. So, but I still want to get to the heart of the question, which was for Adam, Adam struggling with sort of that tension, the nerves, and Drew is struggling with the, with the mind wandering too much. So in both of those specific instances, and I know that the serve and return does create more problems for a lot of players, but for these guys specifically, any any message for them? Well, for the nerves. Nothing better to practice a set that you're going to play in a match. So if you get nerves, you know, getting reps in practice, playing sets should help relax you. And if you can't get relaxed you know, it being in this situation is going to be tough in, in, you know, when you're playing in a match. So I would say practice and your mind wandering, you know, happens. But what you got to do is refocus, find your balance, find that happy point. For me, it was always about humming a Tom Petty song or thinking about something, finding something that puts you in that happy place. Because what it all comes down to, a set, whether or not you have a little score thing on the court, it's more the mindset that we're keeping score and this is for real. And the less that you wander, the more that you focus. But I think practice playing sets, if you struggle, both these guys struggle with it, embrace it. Practice playing sets can only help you get better and loosen up for when you play when it counts in matches. And then I think that leads us to what we wanted to wrap up with and reflect on what we talked about with Vinny. I think one of my biggest takeaways is how Vinny is such a good sort of player with pressure on the line, whether it comes to tennis or poker. And and, and he sort of embodies what you were just uh, you know describing, which is em- embracing pressure. And for him, that's putting a little bit of 
if, if that means putting a little bit of money on the line to create that added motivation, you know, so we can really get juiced up. And, and as he said, he was all about playing matches and really not so much of a guy that got up for practice. So I found that interesting. And I think, you know, finding that, that motivator, you know, whether it's not necessarily money on the line, it could be just, you know, just to give you a feeling a little extra pep in your step, getting that win. But I think finding that motivator, whatever that might be, is, is really a, is, is a big thing. It's a great point. I feel like for club players, for juniors, having a competition or having a little friendly wager in practice now all of a sudden takes on an element that maybe even is more pressure than actually playing the match. So if you can embrace, like when you're practicing, okay, who who can make uh, more serves out of 10? Who, you know, maybe let's uh, let's play for lunch in this in this practice match. So embracing pressure in a kind of a setting that's not a match, I think can only have a carryover effect. So it's putting a little more pressure on the practice, which I think will help you when it's in match play. Because so many players will say, geez, I, I, I'm playing so well in practice and I fall apart in matches. Obviously, you would like it to be the opposite. But one way to help you is creating something in practice that you can win or lose. And when you do that, then when you play in a match play situation, maybe you won't be so uptight. And Vinny was like the first guy that ever was like, let's play for a hundred bucks in practice. And I was like, so uptight, maybe, no, I don't think so. But like maybe deep down, I, I should be able to take this bet and beat him. And so it's a great little way when you're playing with your friend or you're playing with your team of making the practice, being able to win and lose something. So when you play in match play, it wasn't nearly as stressful as, losing lunch or losing just I don't want to lose this so I think can only help you and I I do want to share one little story from when I was teaching at the Cal summer camps the Cal tennis summer camps I we work with it was 60 kids out there ages 6 to 16 and I remember it was a it was afternoon pretty long day and one of the kids he was he was missing a good amount and you know, sort of not finding that like, you know, motivation to be out there that afternoon. And I just thought, okay, like, why, why not, Joey, if you make five balls in a row, I'm going to, I'll give you a dollar after, you know, you know good motivation. Next, the next morning. And he immediately locked in. It basically worked just like you were saying. And, and he made five balls in a row. I don't think he made five balls in a row all day. And immediately he was so fired up just to have like won that dollar and I'm like, okay, I'll get it. I'll get it to you tomorrow. And the next morning, I'm like walking to the camp, and uh, my coach Peter Wright gives me the little tug on the shoulder, pulls me into the principal's office, and he's like, Zach, did you bet Joey, who's like seven years old, that he could, you know, a dollar yesterday that he couldn't make five ball, uh, balls in a row, and now you owe him a dollar. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. That's that's. I guess I guess I did. He's like, well, his parents are are very sensitive when it comes to gambling issues, mm. and they're gonna need you to explain to him how 
betting is wrong and it sets the, the, the wrong principle and that's not what we're about at all at the Cal Tennis Camp. So I had to pull this kid aside that same morning and, and, and explain to him why I wasn't going to give him the dollar. And he was so like bummed. He was like literally the first thing he said to me when he, when he saw me, he's like, where's my dollar? And I'm like, Oh, sorry. Sorry, dude. I guess, I guess we're, we're not doing this, but, uh, it doesn't have to be, you know, putting money on the line, but I think just figuring out ways to make that added pressure, you, you know, even if it's just a, just a little friendly, friendly you wager. Know, you know, the most pressure I almost ever felt in practice when I was maybe 19 or 20, I used to go to Boletari's for the first time, and you'd always play these practices for butts up. Yeah, there you <laughs> and, and so, so if it's not money, it's the threat of physical pain. Yeah, but it, it, it's amazing <laughs> no, just know, the element of, of playing for winning and losing something when it's your own. Yeah, because in the tur- even if we're playing amateur tournaments, all of a sudden we feel like something's on the line, even when they're really... You know, thinking bigger picture isn't really anything on the line. It's one thing when you're playing on the Pro Tour and you're playing a match for a million dollars. But still, when we play, whether we're playing a league match, we all of a sudden think, okay, because this is official, something is on the line. Long and short of it, even in a 3-5 match, 4-0 match, any level you're playing, embrace pressure. Whatever happens, I'm going to learn something from it. And next time, I will be better. But the more you simulate pressure from practice, the easier it is to play and match play, Buck. I'm thinking like Queen and David Bowie, a little under pressure. There you go. Great song to put on. (laughs) Can't sing it, though. All right, guys. That's a wrap.